and welcome to In a Perfect Policy Podcast, Coronavirus Edition. I'm Jenny Brappard, and I happen to have the good fortune of sitting down and spending my social distancing with Kelsey Florek, a bioinformatician at the Wisconsin State Lab, who also happens to know quite a bit about public health and viruses. Hi, I'm Kelsey. I am a bioinformatician at the Wisconsin State Laboratory. So I did my PhD and my MPH at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, my PhD in microbiology, focusing on influenza viruses, and my MPH kind of focusing on epidemiology. What has work been like at the Wisconsin State Lab during the pandemic? It's been interesting. It's a really interesting time to be involved in public health. Um, we're dealing with situations that we've never had to experience with before. So the laboratory itself is designed to handle a multitude of testing, anywhere from things like rabies, HIV, to typical bacterial, like E. coli, salmonella infections, parasite infections, those kinds of things. So as far as capacity, we have the ability to perform diagnostic testing for a broad range of human pathogens. But this is the first time, at least that I've seen, I've only been in the lab for a handful of years, two, three years now, and I've never seen uh, a degree of testing like this before. And in fact, I think a lot of the people in the lab are kind of experiencing this as like a new thing where, you know, we're having to limit or reduce some of our other testing to try to accomplish and meet the needs for coronavirus testing. So one of the big areas here is just the scale of testing is the challenge itself. Yes, yeah, especially early on, um, there was a lot of trying to determine who needed to be tested, how that testing was gonna be done, validating the test, getting things ready to go. Um, It's been a challenge in every avenue. In fact, it's pushed our laboratory to kind of focus on things that we don't normally have to focus on, like supply chain logistics, things like that. Usually we can get the tests we need or the reagents that we need for the tests. Um, But this has been the first time where it's been a challenge just to get the supplies to be able to perform the analyses. So one thing we always like to talk about on the podcast is sort of solutions and what you would like to see happen with a policy issue today. And I know for coronavirus, there's there's a lot going on. So I am not a policy person. Um, my area of expertise is pretty much focused more specifically on um, developing bioinformatic workflows and applications to be used in public health laboratories. As a non-policy person, but with a little bit of expertise, not a little bit of expertise. A little bit. A, a little bit of expertise in the area. A very small minutia. There have been some other experts and other sort of leaders um, talking about different approaches for what we could do or what we should do. So one of the things a lot of people are talking about is uh, the need for massively increasing testing. Can you talk a little bit about, like, we're, it seems we're already doing a lot of tests, uh, but that's not going to be enough. So I think it's kind of important to recognize both kind of where we're come from and like where we're going as far as the testing landscape. So 
it's very easy to kind of fall into this idea of a test is a test, but that's not actually how a lot of these things work, at least not yet. So when you think about a test, like a coronavirus test, where you're trying to test if a patient is positive, what you're actually performing is a whole process of analyses. So everything from um, RNA extraction to converting the RNA to DNA, and then running it through a real-time PCR analysis, and then trying to interpret that analysis as whether or not it's positive or negative. And each one of those steps requires different reagents or different instrumentation. And so when you think about a test, it's not just a single unit that you can purchase and kind of run with. So, you know, when we're experiencing the shortage of reagents, it's not just like one thing we're experiencing shortage of. It's different primers, different kinds of extraction kits, it's different kinds of... Um, just a, a handful of different components that are involved. And in fact, like it's been kind of interesting because we don't just use, for a lot of tests in the laboratory, we use a particular machine because it works super well. Like we'll use, um, for example, the MagnaPure for some extractions on, a, on the bacterial side of things. I think this is the first time I've seen in the laboratory where we're using multiple different types of platforms just to accomplish the same thing, again, to meet the demand. However, that's kind of like where we started and where we've kind of come from. But what you're seeing now is now that there's been enough time and kind of authorizations put in place to allow companies to start to develop point-of-care testing or or tests that can be more readily adopted in clinics, then we start to talk about like smaller reagents where it's just one kit that you can buy that has everything you need to do a coronavirus test. And that starts to get more into this value of like, okay, if it's just one thing that you need now, that makes the whole supply chain logistics a little bit easier because you don't need to get eight different things, you just need like one thing. Um, Obviously, you still have to meet the demand, and because there's going to be such high demand, not just by state public health laboratories, but by clinical laboratories now as well, um, it'll be interesting to see how the different companies are able to deal with that going forward. Cool. Yeah, I guess um, one thing I would be interested in hearing your sort of comments about would be kind of the difference between the research labs and the clinical labs and sort of um, a lot of people are talking about how like when the test was first rolled out it wasn't um, working correctly and they're saying well why isn't it easier to do this and like why can't just anybody who knows how to do a PCR run a test or something like that yeah so any laboratories that are performing testing where the result informs patient care that's considered a diagnostic test. And there's a specific whole area of regulation that this falls under, under. So there's something called CLIA, which is the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. And essentially those are guiding regulations for anything that involves human, like human samples that's not research-based. So if it's research-based, it's more going through like IRB and 
and trying to get approval and like those kinds of things. But since we're looking at this from the perspective of actually performing a diagnostic assay to tell and inform it both, in this case, a physician and likely a patient, we have to follow the CLIO regulation. Um, and I'm not going to kind of get into too many of the details there, but there's some pretty strict regulation in how you validate and perform these tests. So everything has expiration dates, even our water in our laboratories that we, that we use. Um, our sterile water has expiration dates and lot numbers associated with it. Everything is logged and tracked accordingly, and everything is done in a very controlled environment. And that's, again, to ensure that when you're giving a result, you can be sure that that's a correct result. And if there's an issue with that result, you can go back through the paperwork and figure out where the issue occurred. So when you think about the differences between what a clinical or public health laboratory does versus a research laboratory, a lot of times research laboratories are more focused on a scientific question of, I have this question and I want to try to answer it, and I'm going to try several different ways of looking at that question. I'm going to try this assay to get this answer and this assay to get this answer and kind of compile everything together to make a compelling story. Whereas in clinical, it's much, or in public health, it's much more, I want to use the best test available that gives me a yes or no answer. And so that changes everything about how you approach that problem. Very informative. Uh, well, as a, the bioinformatics person, I'm kind of curious if you have any comments about how uh, bioinformatics has played a role in this pandemic. So sequencing and genomic comparison has played a huge role, especially in the initial phases of this outbreak, where if you haven't or had a chance to look at the nextstrain.org, it's a website maintained by Dr. Trevor Bedford. He's done an excellent job in outlining and describing this this uh, pandemic kind of in near real time, or at least when sequence data has become available. And I think it's the first time we've seen, you know, real time genomic information informing our ideas of what this pandemic is doing. So because of that early kind of surveillance work where, you know, a handful of laboratories were able to sequence this information and get a better idea, we were able to figure out things like how long it had been circulating in the community before we even started to detect it uh, appearing at public health laboratories. And I think, you know, in early cases when you're trying to dis trying to determine how big of a how big the magnitude of this kind of thing will be, it's important to kind of see those early trends. And if sequencing can help you identify those, it provides the epidemiologists and the public health policy people with more information quicker about what kind of actions that they might be able to to look at or what things they need to start thinking about down the road. Um, I think this is the first time that this kind of technology has been used, and I think it's going to become one of those things that if we experience novel pandemics again or any sort of outbreak, I think we're going to start seeing more of a focus on the genetic component to try to better understand the dynamics of the disease uh, 
especially in cases where it's largely been undescribed before. Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. Speaking of Trevor Bedford, he had an interesting tweet talking about some potential options for ways that we might look to dealing with coronavirus in the future. And I was just going to list them to you and see if you had any thoughts about them. Just your own personal thoughts. They don't have to represent the lab or anything. <laughs> the, main, the three main things that he was talking about was one, which I think everyone's talking about, is massively increasing testing. Um, kind of like what we've seen with South Korea doing in order to contain the virus and figure out who has it and put them on quarantine. The second was um, a bit more novel, I think. Um, that's using cell phone data to sort of track people's locations and alert them if they might have been exposed. And the third um, is using serological assays uh, basically to figure out who already has um, immunity or who already has been exposed because right now there's a lot of people who might be asymptomatic carriers who might have it and aren't showing any symptoms. So, Kelsey, what do you think is most likely? Which one's your favorite? Just curious. So those are some interesting uh, points to think about. I think rapidly scaling testing is uh, kind of presents itself with some of its own issues. You know, from the start, I think it would have been good to see some some larger initiatives uh, across the governmental spectrum on trying to expand and introduce testing at a wider range. So, I mean, even now we're still triaging and prioritizing certain tests over others because of whatever potential impacts they may have. So... <clears throat> testing things like healthcare workers over other patients because we know that they're the ones that are going to be constantly seeing patients and so we want to know if our healthcare workers are infected in any way. Um, so I think trying to you know massively scale up testing would definitely present some interesting issues but I think in the grand scheme of things I think it would help to better identify cases of people that need to stay home versus those that maybe could start returning to work if that's an option. I think kind of moving on to the second thought of using um, some sort of like location data or cell phone technology, I think that presents itself with an interesting approach, especially considering that large corporations and companies have already started using or have been using um, location information for a long time to try to inform things about, you know, where you visit more often, what kind of targeted advertisements might might be better for you. Um, if you're going to the craft store all the time to purchase things, maybe you should start seeing ads from like Michael's and Joann's more frequently than others. Mm-hmm. So I think I think location data is already playing a big role in our lives. And honestly, I think public health is a little bit behind the times. And, and if there was an opportunity or a way for us to adapt this location information to allow us to better track outbreaks of diseases and things like that, I think it would be a huge step forward in trying to control major pandemics. Do you think there's a lot of um, sort of fears or risk about like privacy, especially for health data? 
if there's not already a concern of, of privacy with the way data is used, I think there that you should be concerned. Yeah. Um, I think that the way data is used now by companies, if it was applied in the same way in public health, I think we'd see much better health outcomes. But I think that's an interesting issue that you bring up is this idea of if we started using it for public health and people started to become aware of exactly what kind of data was out there, maybe there would be better initiatives on how do we actually protect our data. Hmm. So I think it's an interesting interesting question for sure. And to talk to, uh, to your third point about serological testing, um, there's a couple of caveats that come along with serological testing. So it is very useful, the fact that it would be able to detect if somebody potentially had a coronavirus infection. Um, it would also be able to detect if somebody has generated some sort of immunity to the virus. Uh, it does, however, have a lower sensitivity than the RT-PCR test. So you have a potential for missing uh, positive cases, um, which could inevitably show a um, lower infected rate, which may not necessarily be the truth. Along with that, it's um, only really designed to kind of show you if you've had a previous coronavirus infection. It's not really useful as a um, upfront diagnostic tool. So as far as really trying to determine if somebody has the virus and is taking contact precautions and isolating themselves in quarantine, then you really have to rely on the RT-PCR approach. Thank you for weighing in on those options. So I guess from here, oh, you know, uh, basic public health questions. Social distancing, is it important? Yes. <laughs> okay, why? Uh, if you aren't familiar with flattening the curve, you should look it up. It's a big deal. Uh, all right. <laughs> Washing your hands, is that important? Yes. Yes, washing your hands is incredibly important. In fact, I was quite surprised that we were running out of hand sanitizer before we were running out of soap because washing your hands with just basic soap will do a lot better job of removing the virus from your hands than using hand sanitizer. But hand sanitizer is good in a pinch. Yes. What about, um, you know, chugging random drugs? Nope. <laughs> no? Don't do it. Don't do it? Don't, Don't do, do it. Drugs? Only take things that are prescribed. All right. I would like to say how grateful I am for you and the others working at the state lab during this crisis and just how much I think everyone can agree it's really valuable, important work. Yes, I think the real heroes in this story are the laboratory testing personnel that have been working extreme amounts of overtime to try to meet the needs that of testing that are happening in the laboratory. Um, there's been a lot of kind of behind the scenes work happening at the state lab. Um, and we honestly can't thank them enough. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking the time out to do this podcast with me. It's been great, thank you. Mm-hmm.